0: This is Asha Voices, I'm JD Gray. How do society's expectations of people who stutter affect those speakers' experiences? Today on the podcast, we're joined by SLP, Chris Constantino, for a conversation on stuttering and the expectations put on those who stutter by the people around them. When they expect us to be
1: fluent, we try to meet those expectations and we inevitably fail. But if they expect us to stutter, We can easily meet that expectation, and that expectation lifts the burden of fluency from us, and then we can stutter how we want.
0: Chris writes and presents information about varying perspectives on disabilities and communication differences through the lens of an SLP specializing in stuttering. Chris shares how his perspective is changing as he learns and reflects on ideas such as neurodiversity and how society's reaction to stuttering may influence students, clients, and the work of SLPs. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for of Voices comes from the Hannon Center. Are you looking for naturalistic ways to support the social communication and play skills of autistic children? Discover the evidence-based Hannon approach to engaging parents and making a bigger difference for families. Visit wwwhanenorg slash more than words. Today's guest is asking, when it comes to working with students and clients who stutter, what does it look like? If SLPs don't focus exclusively on increasing fluency, SLP Chris Constantino is an assistant professor at Florida State University, and relevant to this conversation, a person who stutters. He joined me for a conversation on neurodiversity and stuttering. This concept, as it relates to stuttering, has influenced how Chris talks about fluency. I think I first heard the term neurodiversity in relation to autism, but in this conversation, Chris explains the way it can give insight into the experiences of people who stutter. To begin the conversation, Chris provides some background on neurodiversity as a movement and as a way of viewing differences.
1: Yeah, neurodiversity certainly comes from the conversations by autistic people around autism. It was first used by an Australian sociologist named Judy Singer to describe conditions like autism, but also dyslexia and ADHD. She she wrote about this in her graduate work and in her dissertation, and then it was it was really popularized in a 1998 Atlantic article by Harvey Bloom, where he was he was basically discussing uh, technology use and those with neurodiversity. He was referring mostly to people on the spectrum who have this this different relationship with the internet and with technology and that that article really popularized the term and it was readily taken up by the autistic community especially and the sort of internet environments and it, Judy's initial intention with the term was to shift the discussion away from Things like deficits and disorders and impairments, and start seeing people in terms of their unique skills and advantages that might come with differences. So how she often puts it is she wanted neurodiversity to be similar to biodiversity or cultural diversity, where people would see value in an increase in neurodiversity at various levels. So that might be, sort of, in a in a organization, so in a in a school, in a company, but also on a societal level. That that these these things might not need to go away. That uh, maybe there's there's value in them.
0: So when we think of stuttering in relation to neurodiversity, do you think of stuttering as a part of the neurodiversity movement, as a part of neurodiversity? Are you saying that you find inspiration or see similarities in what is happening with neurodiversity and autism and what's happening with stuttering?
1: I think there's certainly differences between stuttering and autism. Right? There's there's actually quite large differences. And I think one of the one of the driving claims of the autistic community was that treating autism as a pathology is the wrong way to look at it because it's so pervasive. There's a autistic person named Jim Sinclair who wrote an essay in 1990. Three called don't mourn for us actually if you don't mind i'm going to read a couple sentences from it because i think he he puts this into better words than i can he says autism isn't something a person has or a shell that a person is trapped inside there's no normal child hidden behind the autism autism is a way of being it's pervasive It colors every experience, every sensation, perception, thought, emotion, and encounter, every aspect of existence. It's not possible to separate the autism from the person. And if it were possible, the person you'd have left would not be the same person you started with. So Jim Sinclair is making this argument that the autism is fundamental to the person, and there's no separating the two. And so... One of the reasons for treating autism as human variation rather than pathology is that there, to, to, to treat it otherwise is to dehumanize the person with autism. It's, it's almost eugenic in nature because you're wishing that that person wasn't there as they are. I don't think that same argument holds for stuttering cuz stuttering is is not a pervasive experience. Right? It, it it affects our speech and language or mostly just our the output of our speech. I stutter, I stutter significantly less than I used to, but I don't feel fundamentally a different person than I used to feel. And so the pervasiveness of autism, I think is is very different than sort of the the restricted speech modality of stuttering. That said, I think some of the takeaways from neurodiversity are that there might be value in difference, and treating all differences as pathological causes us to overlook those values, and that Treatment shouldn't focus necessarily on normalization. It should focus on improving the person's quality of life. And sometimes there's a trade-off between those two. The big example that the autism community will, look, will, will talk about is different behaviors that people with autism will use, such as self-stimming behaviors or not making eye contact that seem to be maybe different than how most people communicate but are not fundamentally harmful right they don't if if i don't look at you in the eyes it doesn't hurt you and it might make me feel better so why force me to look you in the eyes why can't you just accept that i prefer not to that analog that sometimes our treatments are aiming at normalization when the person trying to be something they aren't might actually make their disability worse. I think that analogy is very strong with stuttering, that asking a person who stutters to produce fluency if they cannot is unreasonable and discriminatory. I think what I take from the neurodiversity movement and where I think it applies to, to stuttering is that differences can be valuable and treatment should not focus on normalization. It should focus on improving quality of life.
0: You wrote about this in 2018 in Seminars in Speech and Language. There's an article titled, What Can Stutterers Learn from the Neurodiversity Movement? That abstract, you wrote, quote, Rather than focusing on pathology and impairment, neurodiversity emphasizes natural variation and the unique skills, experiences, and traits of neurodivergent individuals. People who stutter are beginning to work with and derive value from these concepts." End quote. And in that same article, you give an example of work that you did at the middle school, working with middle school children who stutter. Could you talk about that experience and what resulted from your work with those kids?
1: Yeah, so I was a school speech-language pathologist for a number of years. And at one particular middle school I was working at, I had a fairly large caseload of kids who stutter. And that was really nice because I could put them in these groups where, you know, I think I had maybe six kids who stutter. I could do two groups of three. I can mix and match the groups And really create an environment in which stuttering was the norm, right? Everybody here stutters. And so it allowed for us to explore stuttering in a way that wasn't about trying to speak fluently, but how can we stutter as, as spontaneously as possible? How can we enjoy? speaking and enjoy stuttering as much as as much as possible how, how can we improve our experience of stuttering and this has been a big focus of mine what does therapy look like if we don't appeal to fluency right if if we never heard of fluency right if everybody in the world stuttered how would we be doing stuttering therapy what would be our objectives we we would want people to be stuttering as as easily as possible. They wouldn't be thinking about speaking. They wouldn't be thinking about stuttering. They wouldn't be thinking about fluency. They would just be talking and hopefully reacting to those moments of stuttering, not with what, what I sometimes call stutterphobic reactions, like not trying to to not stutter. They would react to those moments of stuttering by just allowing them to happen, or what I call stutterphelic reactions. With these group of middle schoolers, we were really able to explore all the choices we make when we stutter all all the different ways there are to stutter the way we stutter often feels necessary and what i mean by that is in the moment we react to the feeling of being stuck in these sort of stereotyped ritualized ways that are just habits to form over time and it can feel like we can't break out of those habits and so a lot of the work we did was just Comparing and contrasting how everybody in the group stuttered. I might try to stutter like one of the kids in the group, and they might try to stutter like a different kid in the group. And we, we were trying on each other's stutters. And the kids would say things like, oh, and I'm just making up the names here. Oh, when John stutters, he doesn't keep backing up like I do. And th- that, that actually feels a lot b- better than what I've been doing. And so we were able to play with our stuttering and workshop ways to make our stuttering easier and easier and show that like we have choice here. We, we have, when we hit those moments of feeling stuck, we have agency and we don't have to stop the stutter, but we can choose how we enter those moments and we can choose how we proceed through these words in ways that that we enjoy more.
0: You mentioned a couple of the exercises, and I'm wondering what some of the results were. What did the the students say after you worked with them? Sort of my my two goals for them
1: were to exercise choice in how they studied and also desensitize a bit to the fear of showing their stuttering. So one of the exercises we would do is we would either be taking turns, you know, playing a, playing a game. And each time somebody had to take a turn, like they would have to speak and the person who went before was able to, by holding up a finger, make the person stutter. And we would, talk ahead of time about how we wanted them to stutter, whether it was a way we've been practicing or an old way that we're trying to break the habit of or just a new way that they haven't tried before. And they'd have to keep stuttering until the until the person put their finger down. And the idea here was, was that stuttering can be fun, right? Like this can be a lighthearted hearted. I'm going to make you stutter as long as I possibly can and then they would do it back to the other kid and it was it it became a competition and and eventually this activity left the therapy room we would make f- phone calls to pizza places asking how much a large pie costs or to flower shops asking how much a dozen roses cost or you know when when restaurants opened and the kids would do this to each other, make them hold these stutters while on the phone call. And they had a lot of fun. You know, it was certainly scary, right? It was certainly hard. But at the end of the phone calls, they were laughing because they would say things like, I didn't think you were ever going to let me finish that word. Stuttering was be- was becoming less scary. It was becoming less ominous, right? They could They could do it and they had... They were building up a track record. They were building up a history of stuttering and still getting what they wanted, still making and completing these phone call tasks. They were, they were countering the narrative that when they stutter, that's a failure, and we're replacing it with the narrative that, you know, to, to, to stutter is to success, su- successfully say what I wanted to. So that was, that was some of the activities we would do. We also practiced a lot of how to respond to microaggressions, right? So how do you respond to instances when the person you're speaking to or the people you're speaking to don't know how to react to your stuttering or react to it in negative ways. So a lot of role playing and a lot of practicing how to teach people about stuttering with the idea that we want we want the people in our environment to expect us to stutter right that when they expect us to be fluent we try to meet those expectations and we inevitably fail but if they expect us to stutter you know we can we can easily meet that expectation and that expectation lifts the burden of fluency from us and then we can stutter how we want and make the choices that we want to make when we're speaking
0: one thing i'm thinking about chris is Parents may have a different goal in mind when the student begins intervention and they may say they want their child to stop stuttering. How do you approach a situation like that where maybe the client or their family has a a specific goal in mind that isn't really the same thing that you might want to work towards with a neurodiversity perspective?
1: I'm usually fairly honest with everyone that there's not good evidence that people past a certain age can consistently produce fluent speech. There's lots of good evidence that we can help people who stutter to speak easier, to increase their quality of life, and to actually make stuttering almost non-existent as a problem in their lives. But there's not good evidence that we can make people spontaneously fluent. And what I mean by spontaneously fluent is fluent in the way that a typically fluent speaker is in that they're not thinking about their speech. You might be able to make a person who stutters sound fluent if they're using fluency techniques all the time. But a lot of our research shows that Thinking about your speech, right, uh, increases the negative impact of stuttering and concealing stuttering, feeling like you need to conceal stuttering all the time, increases the negative impact of stuttering. And I think those two things, having effortful, attention-demanding speech and feeling the need to conceal your speech, seem to lessen the quality of life and increase negative impact suggests to me that even if the stuttering doesn't go away, having people stutter more comfortably, say what they want to say would be a worthwhile therapy outcome. But that's not actually what we're deciding between, right? We're not deciding between a sort of false fluency and a happy uh, stutterer, most people who who reduce their reactions to stuttering, who accept it, who who embrace it, actually start stuttering much less. Right? Like it's the path to increased fluency is often through stuttering. And so I think this, this binary choice that is sometimes presented as is, is like you either accept your stuttering or you use these fluency techniques all the time is, is actually a false binary. And so I have found in my experience that many parents are relieved when they can stop chasing fluency, that parents, just like kids who stutter, have thought oh, we're still stuttering because we just haven't done things right. We just haven't tried hard enough. We haven't done the right therapy or gone to therapy enough times. We haven't devoted enough of our life to to stuttering. And when they hear that, like, actually, stuttering doesn't actually work like that. It doesn't go away so easily that you can live a wonderful life and still stutter. You can stop thinking about it all the time uh my experience has been that parents are like oh thank goodness right? thank goodness we can just move on love our kid the way he is help him speak easier help him speak more the way he wants but not hold him up to the standard that he seems unable to to achieve so that, that that's usually what i share with, with parents you know that some some might still want to pursue fluency approach and that's their prerogative I, i i i think people should be able to pursue the types of therapy that they're interested in
0: we're taking a quick break and then we'll hear more from slp chris constantino Fresh of Voices comes from the Hannon Center. Do you offer services to young children on the autism spectrum? Do you believe in involving parents to make the biggest difference? Join over 12,000 SLPs around the world who've enriched their practice with Hannon More Than Words certification. You'll learn how to support social communication in the context of a child's interests and everyday life. And you'll help parents and children connect more deeply. Learn more at www.hannon.org morethanwords in the 2018 article, What Can Stutterers Learn from the Neurodiversity Movement? Chris explores perspectives on disability and stuttering through two different models, the medical model of disability and the social and relational model. On the medical model, Chris writes, quote, once a human trait is subject to the medical gaze, it becomes undesirable, end quote. But with the social model, Chris observes a different approach.
1: Yeah, so the social model of disability is a... Way of looking at disability that 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 tries to make a distinction between people's bodies and the way those bodies experience the world or experience society. Just to put this into stuttering language, right? Your your impairment might be that you have. The neurophysiology that produces the feeling of being stuck when you're speaking, right? You produce moments of stuttering. The disability comes from society's expectations that you produce fluency, right? That people who stutter are passed over for jobs, they're, they're bullied and teased as children, There's all kinds of research looking at how people in society judge stutters as less, right? Rather, they're seen as less attractive, less competent, nervous. And so the disability comes from the inability of current society to accommodate our difference. And and so this, this is actually much more easy to think about in terms of physical, Impairment. so you think about somebody in a wheelchair trying to get up a flight of s- s- steps it's not their impairment that's preventing them from getting to the second f- f- floor it's it's that the builders assumed that everybody would be walking if they had built built a ramp then the disability would be taken away and so with stuttering because it's 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 a communication condition. It's, it's a bit more abstract. It, you know, it's, it's, we're, not, we're not talking about stairs and ramps. We're, we're talking more about expectations and
0: s- stigma. I, I think when we talk about this, there's also sometimes advantages that can come from social models. Thinking of the social model of disability, can you think of instances that there are things that you gain from being a stutterer?
1: Yeah, actually, this is, uh, this is one of my favorite things to talk about
0: <laughs> because
1: I think my interest in most of this stuff is, is actually not ideological. It's more pragmatic. And what I like about a lot of these alternative models of disability, be it neurodiversity or the social model, is that it, it makes space for stuttering in a way that 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 doesn't appeal to normalization that 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 doesn't appeal to fluency and so they 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 help stuttering to sort of exist on its own two feet i think something that that's helpful is for people to think about is uh what do i gain from stuttering because if you gain something from stuttering then you have a reason to stutter, right? Stuttering is easier if you have a reason to stutter. And so something I, I like to encourage people who stutter to think about is what experiences do you have when you stutter that you would miss out on if you were fluent, if you didn't stutter in, in, in that situation? And the one that I think about all the time is that for me, because stuttering is, is experienced as a feeling of being stuck, as, as a loss of control, I can feel very vulnerable, right? When you're s- stuck momentarily, the person you're speaking to is is witnessing you temporarily lose control of your articulators. It feels very vulnerable, but if you, if you allow it to happen, if if you let it happen, I think it it, in, it invites the person you're speaking to to reciprocate that vulnerability, right? It's like, look, I just allowed you to see the side of me. And if they appreciate that and then reciprocate that vulnerability, that creates intimacy, right? Mutual vulnerability creates intimacy. And so I see my stutter as as a means of connecting with people in a way that would not be available to me if I never stuttered. And I have lots of examples in my life of when this has happened where a stranger has heard me stutter and then asked me about it or related my stuttering analogously to something else going on in their lives. And we had really rich, wonderful conversations that we would never have had if they hadn't momentarily seen me in that vulnerable position.
0: Could you give me a specific example? Did something come to mind?
1: Yeah. I was out at a bar with some Friends, and there was another guy who I didn't really know very well who was friends of somebody else. And we had just been hanging out talking and I had been stuttering quite a bit at this point. And sort of later in the night, he pulled me aside and he said to me, you know, I have this thing that I can't talk to anybody about because I don't want them to judge me. But you have, uh, you have something that people probably judge you about. So maybe you can understand. And he proceeded to tell me that his, his mother has schizophrenia. And schizophrenia usually comes on in your 20s. And so he's constantly worried that he'll grow into schizophrenia too. But he doesn't want to talk about it with anybody because he doesn't want them constantly judging him or, or interpreting his behaviors as possibly schizophrenic. And he's like, I haven't been able to tell anybody about this. And it feels really good to just get it off of my chest and have somebody to talk about it with. And we chatted for a couple hours after that. And it was, it was a fascinating conversation
0: when it comes to stuttering, Chris explains that the application of concepts like the social model of disability or neurodiversity rely on the perception and reactions of people who don't stutter. But this trick me that the person who stutters may be more likely to seek out an SLP, and the person who doesn't stutter may be less likely to seek guidance on communicating with someone who stutters. I asked Chris, with this in mind, where can we see change or development around these issues? I think
1: this is actually... Sort of a catch-22, because often the message I'm trying to explain to people who stutter is that it's, you know, all of your negative experiences are not your fault. It takes two to communicate. And so you're stuttering, but the person you're speaking to is also reacting to your stuttering. People's reactions are part of what's making stuttering difficult, part of what's making communication difficult others have a responsibility to react differently to stuttering and the catch-22 is is that w- while i think it's important that we shift some of the blame for a communication breakdown some of the blame for the awkwardness or, or or experiences that we have to others as you say they don't have skin in the game right like they're not If we rely on others for the change, it's just going to reinforce the status quo, right? That Because people who stutter are the ones thinking about stuttering. Unfortunately, I feel like we continue to carry the burden of how to make that change happen. And I think a lot of it comes down to being willing to confront and teach people about So confront moments of hostility or confront microaggressions and be able to explain, here's how I would like to be treated, right? If somebody's finishing your words for you every time you uh, stutter, they might not realize that um, what they're doing is insulting to you. And so to be able to say to them succinctly, you know, please don't, do that and then say why You know, it, it, it makes me feel rushed and what they can do instead so I would prefer if you just waited patiently I, I, I promise I'll get the word out um, you know that's instead of just fuming about it we have to be able to to, to start changing how other people are responding to stuttering um, I also think and this is really empowering for me just openly stuttering can be really powerful, right? The The more other people hear stuttering, the more comfortable society in general will get with it. Hey, um, if you think about one in a hundred people stutter, that might not sound like very much, but if you walk into a grocery store, there's often probably a hundred people in there. And you never hear stuttering, right? People who stutter are concealing much of the time. And so I think a, a a big thing we can do is to stutter openly and unapologetically and allow people to hear it and allow people to get used to it. But there's a lot of, there's, there's good reason not to do that, right? People who stutter do experience quite a bit of vocational discrimination. People get fired from jobs or just not hired. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done through litigation and through like going through HR channels, uh, we have to, as a group, see this as not just a consequence of how we speak, but as a form of discrimination.
0: I want to ask you one more question. You co-authored an article in the twenty twenty two May June issue of the Esha Leader, and in that article, you write about ableism and stuttering. These ideas are very connected. These ideas that we've been talking about today and and your comments in that article about ableism. One thing you write about in that article is the use of inclusive language. You more or less say it's not about policing language, but it's about making stuttering feel more acceptable, like we've talked about today. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that looks like in practice, using inclusive language, but not policing the language that we use.
1: Yeah, so I think a big part of that is, are we describing stuttering in terms that are wholly negative? Right when we talk about it, are we saying like somebody suffers with stuttering, or right like that that has a very different connotation than somebody has a stutter. I think mostly what I'm concerned about is one talking about stuttering in very negative ways. So it, saying something like uh, my stutter was really bad today versus I stuttered a lot today. One is describing what actually happened. Your your frequency of stuttering was just more than it usually is. And one is putting a, a value judgment on it. However, I think sometimes people do suffer. I never want these conversations to be like, here's what you cannot say right? If I'm a person who stutters and I say, man, stuttering was really hard in that situation. Everybody was super nice and understanding and patient, but I just could not get my words out. I was sweating and exhausted by the time I finished that sentence. Yes, I'm describing my stuttering in a negative way, but I had a negative experience, right? And so that needs to be okay too. It's not like I think we should only allow people to stutter to talk about stuttering in positive language but i think we should realize when we only use negative language to speak about stuttering when there's there's no room made for understanding stuttering in different ways there's no nuance giving to stuttering right like most most human attributes have positive sides and negative sides but we often talk about stuttering in sort of
0: wholly negative terms. Chris, it's always great speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you, JD. I enjoyed it.
0: Want to hear more from Chris? Check out the podcast archive and find an article from the May-June 2022 issue of the Asha Leader Print Magazine, where Chris writes about stuttering and ableism. Find them both at on.asha.org podcast. Asha Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the Asha Leader Magazine. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Hannon Center, be the bridge to deeper connection and greater joy for families of autistic children. Attend a highly acclaimed More Than Words workshop and discover the difference you can make visit www.hannon.org slash I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.